In just about five days, he would be hanging from the cross. A Sunday would come three days after that Friday. He would rise from the dead. Think about what Jesus did on the Sunday prior, one week before almost, his crucifixion and his resurrection. It is recorded for us in each account of the gospel. It's found in Matthew 21, 1 through 11. Mark 11, 1 through 11. Luke 19, 28 through 44. And John 12, 12 through 19. Part of which was just read for us in the scripture reading. What was Jesus doing on Sunday, just a few days from his crucifixion? He was making his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. He was making his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. This is one of the few incidents from the life of Jesus that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John each, through the Holy Spirit, choose to record. There's something significant, something amazing about the triumphant entry that we often overlook. And so I think maybe you would be encouraged and blessed, and I know I have been, to examine this passage a little more thoroughly. Take your pick, Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, or John 12, because I'm going to put the passages together so we can get the big picture of what takes place when Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem triumphantly and people are crying out, Lord, save! They are calling Jesus the King. They have thrown out their coats and palm branches and he's able to ride on a colt, a donkey's little boy, into Jerusalem. Four words I'd like for you to keep in mind. The first word is irony. Irony. Sometimes things are stated in what we might call a weird way just for the sake of emphasis. And the triumphant entry is full of irony. More about that momentarily. The second word is themes. Irony, themes, as we approach the subject. We'll focus especially on the Gospel of Luke and how the themes of Luke really can be seen at work in this case, the triumphant entry. We'll look at context, third word, context. Fourth word, applications. So if you're an outliner, if you like to follow along, keep everything in your head or on paper somehow, this is how you can do it. Irony. Here are at least seven ironies of the triumphant entry. Whatever passage you're looking at it in, 
when you put it all together, the Lord of creation had to borrow a colt. Isn't that astounding? The one who spoke the word and everything was done, Psalm 33, verses 6 through 9, the one who is active in creation of all things, John 1, 1 through 18, had to borrow the donkey and her colt. He sent two disciples, unnamed they were, into the town, and there they would find the donkey and the colt. They were to bring the donkey and the colt back to Jesus, and if anyone asked them, all they needed to say was, the Lord has need of it. The Lord has need of it. It would be enough. And sure enough, the owners in the text did ask the two disciples, and they say, the Lord has need of it, and nothing else They're able to take that on to Jesus. Next, not only do we have the Lord of creation borrowing a colt, we have the Old Testament being fulfilled, but few people recognized it at the time. Zechariah 9 verse 9, the Old Testament would be fulfilled in Jesus' triumphant entry just a few days before his crucifixion. Zechariah 9, verse 9. Though few people recognized it at the time, including the religious leaders of the Jews. Third, when Jesus goes into Jerusalem in the triumphant entry, people cry, Hosanna, Hosanna which literally means, Lord, save. The irony is this. The one riding into Jerusalem on that colt is both Lord and Savior. He is both Lord and Savior. Fourth, they call him the son of David. And how right they were. Far more than they thought. He was the one through whom the promise would be fulfilled that was made to David. 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16. That from your lineage one will come and establish a kingdom that will never be destroyed. There's a lot of irony in the triumphant entry. One is this. You've got the sourpusses. You've got the religious leaders, the Pharisees, and they're saying... Jesus, why don't you just tell those people to be quiet? Those that are saying Hosanna and those that are calling you the son of David, why don't you just tell them to be quiet, to silence them? And Jesus says, if I were to try to silence them, the stones would cry out. Because you see, if Jesus is Lord and Savior and he is the son of David, yet the one David called Lord, Matthew 22, 41 through 46, all of creation should praise him for who he is and what he does. Next, in thinking about the irony of all of this, consider this. Consider that 
when Jesus was cheered probably the most that he'd ever been cheered. And think about this, Brother Tim, and I appreciate your Lord's Supper meditation and the celebration. But sometimes celebration can be fickle, can it? And some of the very people that were celebrating Jesus and crying out Hosanna were undoubtedly some of the same people that cried crucify him just a few days later. This passage is about weeping. Look at Luke 19, 41 through 44. The people cheered and Jesus wept. And the word used for weep in Luke 19, 41 through 44 is a strong word and it carries with it the idea of to wail. It's not just gentle tears flowing down his cheeks. There is intense emotion from the Lord here because Jerusalem had rejected the day of their visitation. God had visited this world. And while there were on the lips of people praise, in a few days, on their lips would be the cry to crucify Jesus. And then finally, when you look at John's account in John chapter 12, verses 18 and 19, here's what the Pharisees say. They say, look, the whole world has gone after him. Talk about irony. They see the big crowd following Jesus and meeting Jesus as he comes into Jerusalem. Look, the whole world's gone after him. I would to God that that were true. Jesus came not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. John 3, 14 through 17. There's irony in the statement. Go with me now and look at themes. And I want to focus on the book of Luke with you just a moment. So you might begin at Luke 19, but I'll give you several passages from Luke that I'd like for you to think about. One of the big themes of the gospel of Luke is Jerusalem is central. Jerusalem is central. Now go in your Bibles to Luke 9 and verse 51. Luke 9, verse 51, that passage says, Jesus steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Everything in the Gospel of Luke really stresses Jesus going to Jerusalem because he knew that it was outside of that city he would be put to death. So you've got that to factor in. Everything in the book of Acts has the church beginning in Jerusalem and going out into the world. Isn't that right? Luke going to the Jer Jerusalem, Acts beginning at Jerusalem and leaving, growing, spreading throughout the world. Acts 1 and verse 8. 
Two-thirds of the occurrences of the name of Jerusalem, the town, in the New Testament are just in Luke and Acts. Don't tell me that it's not a big concept for Luke. Secondly, consider this theme. Consider this theme, joyful praise Luke has been called the gospel of joyful praise because everywhere you look, joy and praise can be seen. How about Luke uh, chapter 1, verses 41 through 45? Luke 1, 41 through 45. Mary goes to visit Elizabeth. And when they see each other, Little baby John the baptizer, still in Elizabeth's womb, leaps for joy. Elizabeth talks about how blessed she is to be able to be in the presence of the Lord and His mother. It is about joy and praise. Go down just a few verses. Look, if you would, at Luke chapter 1, verses 46 and 47. Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Here at the very beginning of the book, we're being hit repeatedly, struck repeatedly by the joy and praise that ought to be given to God. Yes, Luke is all about joy and praise. Keep looking. Look at Luke chapter 2, verses 10 through 14. The angels in unison, the angels all together are rejoicing and giving God great praise that Jesus has come. Luke 2, 10 through 14. Now, just keep going down and look. At Luke chapter 2, and you'll see verses 25 through about 38, where little Jesus encounters Simeon and Anna. And in each case, there is great joy at the sight of the Lord, the Messiah, who has come, and praise is given to God. From Jerusalem to joyful praise, think about this theme in Luke. The theme being justice reversals. Just reversals. What's significant about Luke especially is this. Remember me referring to Luke 9.51 a little bit ago where it says he's going to go steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem? Ten chapters in the book of Luke are devoted to Jesus going to Jerusalem. That's an awful lot of the book. And that's something that he really wants to stress. He wants to impress our minds on the fact with the fact. Turn to Luke 13.30. Justice reversals. The way things are are going to be turned on their head because of the coming of the Lord, the Son of David, the King, 
the Messiah. When you look at Luke 13 and verse 30, some who are first will be last, and the last will be first. You've heard of statements like that before, haven't you? Where Jesus gives a seemingly contradictory statement, but it's not at all. How about those that walk in pride, he's able to humble, and those who are humble will be exalted. Luke 14, 11. Luke 18, 14. Repeatedly in the teaching of Jesus throughout the Gospel of Luke, there's a reversal of how you think things are going to be. In Luke 10, 25 through 37, who's the hero? A man is robbed and beaten up and left half dead on the side of the road. Who's the hero? Is it the priest that comes along? Is it a Levite when he comes along? Who's the hero of the story? The Samaritan. A group of people that were looked down upon and despised by the Jews. There will be a reversal of things. How about this one? A Pharisee and a tax collector both give prayers to God in Luke 18, 9 through 14. One of them returns to his house justified, the other does not. When you look at who it is, it's surprising. Because it's the tax collector who won't even look up toward heaven, but he cries out, God be merciful to me, the sinner. Remember? Whereas the Pharisee is full of himself. There'll be a reversal of things. You can see that even in stories from Luke, like the rich man in Lazarus, Luke 16, 19 through 31. We don't know if this was a parable or not. If it was a parable, it's the only parable Jesus ever told where he mentions someone's name, specifically Lazarus. There's a reversal of things. In this life, it's the rich man who has so much And Lazarus is a beggar who would eat crumbs. But in the afterlife, it's Lazarus who is blessed, and it's the rich man who is tormented and poor. I can't help but think about Luke 19, Zacchaeus. Adam preached on the theme not long ago. Zacchaeus was one of the main tax collectors of the area in Luke 19. And yet, it's Jesus who goes out of his way to go to his house. And he brings salvation. These themes are really rich, but they all remind us of who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do to seek and to save that which was lost. Luke 19.10 To call the sick to health and sinners to repentance. Luke 5 and verse 32. Now notice this with me. I want to look at the context. Turn in your Bible to Luke 18. And I want to notice the three events just prior to the triumphant entry. Then we'll draw some applications. 
Turn to Luke 18, verse 35. And there you'll read of a blind man near Jericho, which would be about 15, 12 to 15 miles from Jerusalem. Jesus is getting really close to where he has been aiming, going to, the, to Jerusalem, encountering the cross. He's just a few miles away, and as he's traveling, a blind man says, Who is it as there's such a commotion and crowd? And people tell him it's Jesus of Nazareth. And notice what the blind man does. He cries, Son of David, have mercy on me. And the people try to quiet him down and say, Don't bother him. Can't you tell how how busy he is? And Jesus heals the blind man. Who is Jesus? He is the one who heals the world's blindness. He is the promised king, the Messiah. Now look at Luke 19. The event, a second event. This is Zacchaeus. And what this passage does so marvelously is bring out so much of what the Gospel of Luke is really all about. But what Zacchaeus wants to do is see Jesus. And so the man small in stature climbs the tree, but he finds out that Jesus had seen him. And knew him. And Jesus invites himself into the home of this tax collector. You know what Zacchaeus and his family would discover? They would discover that Jesus is the Savior who came to seek and save what was lost. And in Zacchaeus' case, he would say, That would be me. Luke 19, 11 through 27. Jesus tells the story, the parable of the pounds, the parable of the minus. And if that doesn't help you, pounds, we're not talking about what's around people's waistlines. We're not talking about minus as, as in King Minus and mythology. It, was, it had to do with money. And what this story is about is a king gives to people gifts and treasures and he goes away with the assurance that he will return. And he wants to see what they will do with the gifts and blessings he's entrusted, he's given to them to take care of. The whole idea is this. Jesus is the Lord of life and blessings. And the time comes, you hear me, Troy? The time comes when the Lord will ask you and me and each one of us, what have you done with the life and gifts I have given you?
Now we're ready for the application. Focus on Luke 19, 28 through 44. Location, location, location. Where is Jesus? Luke 19, 28. Jerusalem. The fullness of time had come and God has sent His Son and the Son would go to the cross. Galatians 4, 4. Joyful praise. You won't find any praise during the life of Jesus greater than that He was receiving in this circumstance from the people. And here's the idea. There was a group of people that had followed him from, say, Bethany and all because he'd raised Lazarus. Remember that in John 11? And there were people from Jerusalem that had heard about it. They were coming out to meet him. So you had a vast group of people coming to meet him and behind him, following him. And they were singing his praise. It makes me think about how glorious it will be when the saved of all the ages, from before the time Jesus came and from after the time Jesus came, could all be together to praise Jesus with great joy for the salvation He gives. A judgment or a justice reversal. The people on that occasion, I guess they meant what they said. They were sincere at the time. But how often have you said something sincerely only to eat those words later and to regret ever saying them and to have changed your position completely? That's what people did on that day. And that is why Jesus would say, you have rejected the day of your visitation. Receive him or reject him. The only options that are available. Jesus' identity. They call him the prophet. They cry out to him, Hosanna. They say that he's the one that comes in the name of the Lord. They call him the son of David. He is all of those things. And you see here in this event how many of the great themes of the Gospels themselves all come out. If Jesus is the one that was promised to David, if Jesus is the prophet, the ultimate prophet to whom God has spoke, if Jesus is the king, if he's the one that's come in the name of the Lord, can you afford to reject him? Can you afford to reject him? Can I? You see... The one who was celebrated that day wept for those that would reject him. For those who are lost, Jesus cried for you. And Jesus died for you.
One can be saved by Jesus and the blood of the cross by believing that He is God's Son, turning from your sins in repentance. I don't want to go that way anymore. By confessing the precious name of Jesus that He is Lord. He is the Son of God. And by being immersed in water for the forgiveness of sins. Please don't reject the one who gave his life for you. Embrace him. There's a lot that could be looked at in passages like this that are often overlooked when we think of the death of Jesus. Let us stand and sing.